I got an email saying that Jerry Bruckheimer wanted to read the my my first book, um, the movie producer. And we went out to this big dinner and we ordered a great bottle of wine. And we just had this fantasy that like, we are set for life. Hollywood, here we come. And um, and a couple of days later, I got another email. This is back when you would have to go to internet cafes to check your email. We got another email that said, they passed. You know, <laughs> <laughs> um, But so it was similar. Can we with the uh, send back where... that bottle of wine, please? <laughs> exactly. I know, is it too late? Not too many people are passing these days on Patrick Radden Keefe. He's a gifted writer, acclaimed for his books, his pieces in The New Yorker magazine, and an award-winning podcast called Wind of Change about the possibility that the CIA actually wrote a popular ballad about the changes in Eastern Europe in the late 80s in the hopes of ending the Cold War. This is before the cheering started. I'm Bud Mishkin. It's a podcast all about the journey to success, the early years, when that success was by no means guaranteed, the before the cheering started years. Long before his books were earning resounding praise, there were more than a few early years of rejection letters and struggle for Patrick Radden Keefe, despite a sterling academic resume, Columbia University, a master's at Cambridge and the London School of Economics, and a degree from Yale Law School. But his story starts in a place quite far, if not in distance, but an atmosphere from those august halls of academia. Dorchester, Massachusetts, a big, diverse, complicated, historic neighborhood in Boston. Patrick, your latest book is entitled Rogues, True Stories of Grifters, Killers, Rebels, and Crooks. The intrigue with those types of people, is any of that based in stuff you saw growing up in Dorchester, Massachusetts? Oh, not really. I don't think so. I mean, the, um, you know, Dorchester is an interesting neighborhood. Um, and there was a fair bit of crime there when I was growing up, uh, still is. Um, and so maybe there was, there was that just, you know, kind of low level street crime stuff. And I certainly grew up in a, in an, in a period where you had, you know, you had the IRA raising money in my neighborhood. You had um, Whitey Bulger out there somewhere. So there was a bit of that. But honestly, more of it probably came for me from from reading uh, Dorothy L. Sayers and Agatha Christie and Sherlock Holmes stories, you know, hard-boiled fiction. I, I just read a lot as a kid. And that was instilled in you by your folks? Is that spoken or unspoken that this is what you should do? Uh, very much instilled by my by my parents, both of whom are big readers, and um, my dad. I mean, it sounds it sounds almost antique to describe it now, but when I was a kid, my dad would read aloud. Um, he would read aloud Sherlock Holmes to us. He would read aloud uh, Charles Dickens. You know, Great Expectations, um, and uh, we would you know. We didn't. We had a TV, but it was very sparingly used. So um, there was a there was a culture both of of reading, solitary reading, but also of people reading aloud to others. It's not every kid that gets great expectations read to them aloud. No, but it's the thing is it's it's so great. It's funny. I recently revisited it, um, and I can and, and particularly those opening pages. You can see how for a kid. You know, a very dramatic rendition by by my dad. It was pretty exciting. 
And and with the TV, even though you say the TV's not on much, the TV's there. So is there some notion of, hey, Pop, great expectations is all well and good, you know? Something, you know, Batman is on or something like that. Yeah, there was a little bit of that, but we were, I mean, it was it was crazy. My parents had, my parents had, um, you know, I mean, this is the early 80s and... Um, my mother's Australian and was a little skeptical of, of American popular culture writ large. And so, you know, we had a little black and white TV. Um, they actually kept it in a, in a closet under the stairs and would take it out and, you know, periodically for like a special treat. And then when we watched, we mostly watched public television, we watched regular television. They had a whole thing. It's hilarious in retrospect. They would turn down the ads. They would turn down the volume on the ads. So all my first, my early experience of advertising was silent. And I was <laughs> even more mesmerized by these little silent films for, you know, Cheerios or, uh, or Matchbox cars or whatever else. Not hard to figure out the message there. The, the TV is in the uh, you know, under the stairs in a closet, and they're turning down the so- sound on the, on the ads. That, that message kind of comes through loud and clear. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it did. It listen. It did make a reader of me. But the the what's funny is that I like my wife can have a. We can be out at a bar or a restaurant. There's a TV in the corner, and she just totally tunes it out because she's used to having a TV there in the as part of the wallpaper. For me, if there's a TV on anywhere, I, it's very hard for me to pry my eyes off it. Found a TV that's not sitting in a closet under the staircase. Exactly. Um, you mentioned that the IRA is, is, has some activity raising money in your neighborhood. I was intrigued by uh, you know, the local newspaper, the Dorchester Reporter, wrote about you in 2019. The quote was, no plastic patty, this one. What does that mean? Uh, so pl- plastic patty is a term that you encounter in Ireland, uh, a derogatory term for a certain kind of nostalgic Irish American who for decades felt a real sense of connection to the struggle for Irish independence and mm-hmm. gave, gave money to perpetuate the war of the IRA, um, and so that would be the people in the bar down the street from my house who contributed money to the IRA from the safety of Dorchester. I mean, I think the what a lot of people uh, in Northern Ireland felt, understandably, I think, is, you know, fr- from the safety of the United States where there's no danger that, the, you know, that money is going to buy bombs, right, or bomb-making components. And those bombs will be set in public places. And in, in many instances, those public places are in Northern Ireland. You know, it's not in Boston. So the idea of a plastic patty is it's somebody who's kind of a, kind of a wannabe, but also mm-hmm. somebody who is getting a sort of vicarious thrill out of violence that is very unlikely to, to hurt them or their immediate family members, but very likely to hurt people across an ocean. Was, uh, was skipping a little bit ahead here, but one of the books you're known for is Say Nothing, the book about the troubles in Northern Ireland. Is the preparation for that or the, the leading up to doing the work for that book, is it any different because of the subject matter and growing up in Dorchester, or is it just another compelling topic that you're about to write about? It's it's totally the latter. I mean, I there there were. I have this aggressively Irish name, Patrick Keefe, and so that creates a certain expectation. Some places where I go, 
right? Mm -hmm. That people assume I must have some connection. But the truth is that with Say Nothing, it started like any other project for me with a piece in The New Yorker. I read an obituary. It seemed intriguing. It was not a situation where I felt any deep personal connection. Um, you know, maybe in some subconscious way, the fact that I that there was this pub down the street from my house and my father would go there and I knew because he would tell me back then that they passed a hat around. Mm -hmm. um, you know, maybe that influenced my perspective to some degree, but it wasn't something that, that, that drove the way I did the project. I did it like I would do any other. So growing up, you go to Milton Academy in the Boston area. So as you get into your teens, the high school years, have some notion of what you want to do or is it all kind of a, a blur for you at that point? No, I knew. I mean, the <laughs> the funny thing is that the I knew from a very early age that I wanted to be a writer. Um, I, I sort of had romantic notions of what that might entail. I think initially I thought probably fiction. Right. Um, what I didn't know was how you engineer that, how you make that happen. And I knew... You know, through my family, I guess I knew journalists who were like the kinds of people who worked at the Boston Globe and places like that. But that was, I didn't want to be a newspaper reporter. I started reading The New Yorker fairly early and I i loved The New Yorker. I loved the idea of being a New Yorker writer. But I didn't, you know, there's no, there's no like entry level job that you can just go out and get. It's not a, it was a complete riddle to me how you take that ambition, fairly specific ambition and how you translate it into, um, you know, actually getting a right for the magazine. And what were the romantic notions that you had? What, what did you think the life would entail? And has that uh, been realized? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think I liked the idea of... Um, there's, a, there's a sort of uh, iconoclasm, a kind of independence to being a writer where you, you know, you, you got to hustle. You're a bit of a hustler. You're out there. You're sort of a free agent. You know, nobody's paying your overhead. You, you're only ever as good as what you did yesterday. And today you got to sit down and do it again. And hopefully it'll be as good. You sort of have to live by your wits. You don't really have a boss. Um, I think there's a, I still think that there's some romance in that. Um, and so all of that was appealing to me and, and I liked the idea of, of writing things that people will read. There's a kind of performative aspect to it, right? Not just that you, not that just you find, you find the right words and you, you know, you, you turn a pretty phrase, but I, I liked the notion of then sending the thing out into the world and the, and the dynamic of the notion that even people who don't know you, who are mm -hmm. strangers to you, that they might pick it up and engage with, with these words that you strung together. It's the beauty of the beauty of any kind of art that you put something out into the world and somebody, you know, half continent away can be uh, affected by it. Um, Absolutely. So you you off to Columbia University and uh, is this uh, okay? I'm 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 here. I'm in New York. I love the New Yorker. At least I'm closer to you know its origin. What are those years like? They were great. I mean, it was very, very happy. I, I desperately wanted to go to Columbia. I actually didn't get in the first time I applied. And I so I took a year off and I worked in Boston for a year and reapplied. And so when I got there, I had a um, both a real appreciation of 
just how lucky I was to be finally doing this thing that had kind of been denied to me. Um, and what's the thought during that year in Boston? Is there is I mean, you're still a young man, obviously, but is there some notion of, wait a minute, this you know, is this going to work out? Yeah, I mean, I I was I had gotten into other colleges. I was confident that I would I would get an education, and 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 um, it was more just kind of trying to figure out, you know, who who do I want to be? What do I want to do? How am I going to make this work? The thing that was very helpful for me was that by the time I got to college, I had I had a year during which I was working two jobs, pretty independent, hanging out with a bunch of people who were either taking time off from college or had just finished college. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, kind of letting my hair down and drinking and hanging out and blowing off steam. And it was really useful to do that before going to college, because when I arrived at college, I'd gotten some of my I'd gotten some of that out of my system. And I had a little bit of a sense of what do I want to get out of this experience? Mm -hmm. Um, So I was a big nerd. I mean, I just I just fell right into it. I loved my professors. I loved all the reading. I loved the core curriculum at Columbia. I was writing the whole time. Um, At that point, fiction, not very good fiction. Um, But I loved it. But the writing, the writing classes have an effect on you at Columbia, Uh, an effect that would last throughout your career. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I did a lot of fiction workshops. And um, while I was never great at um, kind of standing up a, a, a sort of snatching a plot out of thin air. Um, I think a lot of the novelistic techniques of how do you set a scene, how do you describe a person, um, how do you use language, all of that stuff really informed who I became as a writer. And I, I studied with Simon Shama, the great historian who's professor at Columbia, um, and he became sort of a mentor to me. And he was the art critic for The New Yorker at the time, which, you know, there was no like nepotistic path where Simon <laughs> Simon helped me out with The New Yorker. He didn't. Um, but the uh, but it was really helpful to kind of have like a, a front row seat to or maybe a third row seat to just seeing this guy who'd made a life in the world teaching history, but also writing these cool pieces in the New Yorker. You were at least in the orchestra. Exactly. Yeah. I was there. I was right. I was yeah, somewhere in the, I was somewhere in the ballpark. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, the musician Stephen Van Zant has said to me during several interviews that uh, regarding being a rock and roller growing up down the Jersey Shore at his time growing up in the, primarily in the early 60s, mid 60s, if you had any other option, you would have taken it because it, you were not a you were not popular and it was a, a rough go and so on. But he had no other option. Um, it seems to me, reading that you, you got a master's at Cambridge and London School of Economics, and you came back and you're at Yale Law School, that you had other options. Were there other considerations along the way of uh, I, I you know I'm in school at London School of Economics or I'm at Yale Law School. I'm, I'm going to do something else. Um, only when I thought writing wasn't going to work out that I, I mean, I'm a risk averse enough person. Well, there's a couple of things. One is that I liked being in school. School was fun. It beat working. <laughs> um, it was, you know, when I went to grad school, it was free cause I got a fellowship. When I went to law school, I, you know, I took out a huge number of loans and I didn't, I don't think I fully appreciate it. It was so easy to get, to, to get the loans that I don't think I fully appreciated that, you know, you're gonna have to carry interest and you're going to have to pay them back. It's but funny, the, how um, that, funny how that works. Yeah. Oh man. Um, or not so funny actually. Yeah. I just, oh boy. But the, um, 
but I I think the concern for me was um, I you know I hoped to eventually have a family and and I wasn't I wasn't totally sure that it, I was going to make it as a writer I was I had been trying all of my efforts to publish fiction I never published a short story. You know, I, I submitted to dozens and dozens of places over years and years. And I never got I got some nice rejection notes, but I never published a thing. And then for years, I was pitching magazine articles without success. And so there was a real question in my mind of like, this may just not work out. And that was part of the reason that I went to particularly to law school was I thought you're going to keep trying. And if it doesn't work out, you'll have a fallback. Mm -hmm. um, and it started to work out while I was at law school. And how's that conversation going at home uh, with your folks in terms of being at London School of Economics at Cambridge, then Yale Law School, and you're still trying to be a writer? Are they okay with that? Your family okay with that? They understood? Or is there any notion of, oh, geez, you're at Yale Law School, you know, maybe being a lawyer would be a good thing? I think, I mean, I should say overall, my parents have been marvelously supportive and and um there was never a situation where i felt like they there was never a moment when they said you know when they said oh give up your silly dreams you really should become an accountant or anything like that it was my father had worked in massachusetts state politics he worked uh closely with mike dukakis and um you know i think he there was part of him that I think probably always hoped that I would go into government or go into politics in some capacity. And so there may have been a little disappointment on his part there, but it wasn't a situation where they were like, Oh, you, you know, you really need to become a corporate lawyer. I, I, I will say though, that I don't think that they're, what they weren't going to do was like pay for me to go to an MFA program or, you know, like pay the rent while I went off to Paris and like tried to write a first novel. Like that was never in the cards. There was right. a sense of like, if you really want it, you'll make it happen, but we're not going to subsidize. Um, even, I, I don't know that they even would have been in a position to, but like, they're not, you know, it's, it wasn't a thing where they were like, um, don't worry, you don't need to pay your dues like everybody else. Like right. you can just try and sort of wait around till the muse alights, um, <laughs> you know? Uh, and so I, I guess I was probably somewhat mindful of that. And you had other jobs along the way, right? Didn't you, you worked at a think tank and did you work at the Pentagon? I did. Yeah. So yeah, it's a long and complicated story, but I went to law school, got a book deal while I was in law school, took a year off, got a fellowship at the New York Public Library, finished that book, went back to law school because I figured I got, I've taken out loans and done two years. I might as well at least get the degree. Right. So the, that first book came out after my first year of law school. After my last year, during my last year of law school, and then I, um, and then I got my first assignment for the New Yorker. But I was a freelancer, and it was not a, you know, there was a long period of time when I they would publish one freelance piece a year by me, which is not, you know, I don't remember what I got paid, but it was like, it was like a a few tens of, it wasn't even, it was, you know, it was like, it was between ten and twenty grand a year, basically. Um, there were years where that was what I was getting from the New Yorker and tough, you know, eventually like I had a kid and then another kid and I was still freelancing. And so what that meant is I had to hustle. And so I got a job at a think tank. I wrote screenplays, uh, for a, for a long time, screenwriting subsidized what I was doing to this day. I have insurance through the WGA, which is all through screenwriting. Wow. I, 
And then in 2010, this opportunity came up to go a source of mine, somebody I used for my some of my pieces who talked to me, said, hey, why don't you get, there's these fellowships where you can get a fellowship and come and be at the Pentagon for a year, get a top secret clearance, come in for a year, get a sense of the anthropology of the place. And then at the end, you leave. And as long as you don't write about the classified stuff, you're good to go. And what so, kind of work were you doing there? Oh, God, I was like, I was so useless. I, <laughs> you know, the Pentagon, it's one of these funny things where from the outside, like on a resume, it looks impressive. I was a policy advisor in the office of the Secretary of Defense. Yeah, that, so the, that, that, that impressive is a good way of putting it. Yeah. Sounds good, right? Yeah. So here's the thing. When you picture the office of the Secretary of Defense, you're picturing, you know, like a physical office and maybe the Secretary of Defense. There are a thousand people who work in the office of the Secretary of Defense. I never talked to the to the Secretary of Defense. I never saw the Secretary of Defense. Um, <laughs> this was Bob Gates at the time. I was never in a room with the man. I never passed him in the hallway. Like the Pentagon is such a huge place that it was like... Um, it was just this vast bureaucracy and I would put on a suit and come in every day and write memos mostly about, I was really into corruption as an issue and I thought we weren't thinking about what causes corruption and how you tackle corruption. And there was like no conversation happening between people who were confronting corruption in Afghanistan and people who were confronting it in Egypt um, or in like the Latin American context. There was no sense of lessons learned. And so basically what I did for a year is I wrote these memos that nobody really read. Uh, I would send them up and they would they were all addressed to Michelle Flournoy, who was the at the time she was the undersecretary of defense for policy. But I don't think, you know, like I don't think anything came of I think I added zero value. I got a lot of that experience. They got nothing out of me. Well, in terms of being there for a year, is there anything you can point to that says, yes, here's what I experienced that year and here's how it helps me as a writer going forward? Oh, yeah, a, a ton. Yeah. I mean, in terms of understanding the um, the way a bureaucracy works, in terms of understanding the, um, you know, frankly, the amount of redundancy that is built into particularly the defense establishment, there were just all these different offices where you had these people, it was like the DMV, you had these people kind of coming in, working a job, riding a desk, trying really hard to protect their little rice bowl, always worried that, the other guy down the hall might be doing something similar to them and edge them out and get their funding. And um, yeah, I mean, it, it didn't it didn't fill me with um, optimism <laughs> about the way in which the government works, but it was a real very close up experience of how the sausage is made. And when you left, I, I would assume since you had never met the man, Mr. Gates was not really heartbroken over the fact that you were no longer at the Pentagon. <laughs> they, they didn't. I don't think anybody. Honestly, it's like one day I was there, the next day I was gone. I don't know that anybody noticed. Patrick Radden Keefe. His latest book is called Rogues. It's a collection of pieces written for the New Yorker magazine where he's a staff writer. But early on, he got rejected by the New Yorker more than once. Yeah, many. Yeah, many. I mean, I have one framed on the wall behind me here. Every um, writer has a rejection letter framed. What, yeah. What's that about? Yeah. Well, I mean, the funny thing is, in retrospect, well, here's the funny thing. In retrospect, it looks like a, a you know, like a screw you, I made it. You wouldn't let me in before, but, but now I'm in. But at the time, to be honest with you, this was the first letter that was a real letter with my name and address and somebody took the time to write, you know, we don't, 
this doesn't fit our needs right now. Previously, I would get these little card stock things, which was just somebody puts in an envelope. Dear contributor, thank you for your offering. We cannot use it right now, but good luck to you in your future ventures. Um, so it is funny in retrospect that like getting a signed letter actually felt like a felt like progress, you know, a little bit of a win. Yeah. During the course of these rejection letters from The New Yorker and other places, is there any self-doubt about whether you can do this or are your, are your feet firmly planted in the soil like, no, I'm, we're going through. This is going to happen. Yeah, I mean, this is an interesting one, right, where I think you could you could not unreasonably say that as a white guy with a you know, with a fancy education that there are all kinds of structural reasons why I just assumed that the problem wasn't me, you know, that there was a, I mean, entitlement is probably too strong a word, but it was, but I didn't have doubt. And I, and again, I don't know how much of that is because I am demographically who I am and how much of that is just my own personality and the way I was raised. But I had a kind of conviction from the beginning when every time I got rejected, I thought, they're wrong. Um, and, um, you know, I was, I was, uh, there was a limit to that in the sense that like you do learn, right. And that eventually I started talking with editors and they would say, here's why we're not going to do this piece. And I would take that information on board. Um, you know, I, I think, I think nobody, no matter who you are in your career, whatever you do creatively, at the point where you don't, where you're not taking notes from people, you're in real trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't that I, that I was kind of arrogantly oblivious, but I did have this sense that no, I can do this, and um, hopefully, if I stick with it, uh, I'll be able to make it happen. So and it wasn't. You- it was just. It was. Ne- it was never. There was never a moment where it looked like I would quit because I doubted myself. It was more that I would look like I would quit because. I needed a job, like I had to, you know, pay the rent, and um, there might not be an alternative. Do you remember where you were when you got the first acceptance letter from the New Yorker? I do. I was at a conference in. Um, it was an email, and I was at a conference in, I think, Toronto in Canada, related to this first book that I published, um, and. Yeah, I got an email from Daniel Zaleski, who's still my editor today. And he said, you have an assignment, exclamation point. And it was like he wrote it in a way that he could tell I was going to be supremely excited about this. And I was. Remember how you celebrated? Well, I was by myself at a conference, so I probably just, uh, you know, ordered a stiff drink at the bar but um, and, and called my, my then girlfriend and uh, soon to be wife. Is the assumption then that, oh, okay, I'm going to do this assignment. It's going to go well. And then the assignment is going to keep on rolling in. And it's a, it's a clear sailing from here. Or is there already the understanding of that writing is a little bit of what have you done for me lately? I think, yeah, I mean, I think particularly during this period of time, and I wasn't even that young. So this is this is 2005, 2006. So I'm, and I turned 30 in 2006. So I was... I wasn't even that young, but I, that period of time was very characterized for me by, you know, there were these play, these things where I'd been trying really hard to break through and then you break through 
for the first time in what is really a small way. And there was a little bit of a sense of like, now I'm set for life. You know, like if I can, if I can just do well on this piece, then they'll make me a staff writer. Um, my wife and I always joke about the, this is actually the summer before that. My, my first book was, um, it was about to come out and I got an email. I was in Argentina. We were traveling. And I got an email saying that Jerry Bruckheimer wanted to read the my, my first book, um, the movie producer. And we went out to this big dinner and we ordered a great bottle of wine. And we just had this fantasy that like, we are set for life. Hollywood, here we come. And, um, and a couple of days later, I got another email. This is back when you would have to go to internet cafes to check your email. I got another email that said, they passed. You know, <laughs> <laughs> um, but so it was similar. Can we with the uh, New send back where... that bottle of wine, please? <laughs> exactly. I know. Is it too late? <laughs> um, it was similar with The New Yorker in the sense that I got that first assignment and I thought I was set. And what I didn't realize was it would take six years of freelancing mm -hmm. with me the whole time saying, hey, guys, can you put me on staff? Can you make an honest man of me? Um, and I, uh, you know, it, for one reason or another, it, it didn't happen for six years. And so that was that was humbling, but in a way that um, just made me kind of redouble my efforts on the work. For the work that you've done and the pieces that you've written and the books that you've written, you've been in some situations that are, uh, that are, could be, shall we say, uh, a, a little bit sketchy, uh, be it uh, reporting on El Chapo or writing Say Nothing and many of the other pieces in, in the book Rogues. Um, there's no real class for that, I would assume. How does one prepare for being in those positions and I would assume having to be comfortable with being in those positions. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I never want to overplay this aspect of my work for a couple of reasons. I mean, one is that, you know, I, I have, um, I have colleagues who are war correspondents, you know, I have this incredible colleague, Luke Mogelson, who's doing amazingly brave reporting right now in Ukraine. And, um, and that's not what I do. And I, I wouldn't do that or know how to do it. And then with El Chapo, for instance, I mean, you know, it's an incredibly dangerous time to be a reporter in Mexico if you're Mexican. And so I always have this advantage, which is I have this U.S. passport and I can go home. So I just I never want to kind of over play the degree of daring do like I, you know, understood not that Un understood. And I appreciate you saying that. But have you been in positions where you kind of look around and say, well, I, I, I'm not sure I was, I was I bargained for this one? Yeah, sure. sure, Yeah, a few of those. But I mean, I but again, the, the fear for me is usually that I might get roughed up a little bit. Not that, um, you know, not that anybody's going to kill me or, or uh, that a bomb's going to fall on me or anything like that. And um, and I, I tend to be pretty careful. I, you know, um, there are places I won't go and um I'm very mindful of having two young kids at home, you know? So, um, yeah, I think it's, it's, some of it is in the moment, just sort of having a sense that you're always doing a little bit of a cost benefit calculation, right? Mm -hmm. What would I get if I go down that dark alley from a reporting point of view? And then what kind of risk am I running? Um, and it's an ongoing conversation with my, my wife, who I also went to law school with, she did become a lawyer. So she's kind of my in-house counsel. And, uh, and there are any number of stories that um, I've been potentially interested in. And she has just, just vetoed flat out. She has veto power, eh? She does have veto power. Yeah. Um, on the flip side, 
you wanted to be a writer forever. So are there moments as you're researching these stories uh, and in these positions where you kind of are able to take a step back when you're not working and say, well, it happened. You know, I, 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 I dreamed it. I, I envisioned it. I imaged it. It happened. Yeah, I mean, that's um, that's every day. You know, I I feel extraordinarily lucky to be able to do the work and um, particularly the kind of work that I do is very resource intensive, like all the reporting on these New Yorker pieces. Um, and then they let they let me write at this great length. Mm -hmm. And that's a both of those are just rare privileges uh, in this day and age. And so I'm I'm very aware every day that I, I feel like I, you know, I, I kind of hit the jackpot in that regard. And I should say also, you know, people are reading my work, which is, is thrilling. Um, but I look at the careers of writers and writers I admire and other kinds of artists, and I know it doesn't always last, you know, so that makes me, you know, I hope it lasts for as long as it can, but I, and, and I hope, if people stop reading me that I'm, I can still do good work and, and just take satisfaction in doing the good work. Um, but it does make me savor every minute of, of my professional life right now. The, 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 the awareness that I'm very lucky and this may not last forever. Seems to be going pretty well so far and no doubt will continue. Uh, you mentioned, uh, your kids. Um, the question is, are they being read great expectations out loud yet? Or is that still to come? <laughs> so I'm, you know, I'm trying here and there. They are very much kids of a different, of a different century. <laughs> so, uh, the, I think they're downstairs watching YouTube videos as we speak. So this either means that I'm, I'm not as good a parent as my parents were, or, uh, or my kids are a little more strong-willed, but somehow we'll the TV is not un in the closet under the uh, under the. It is. We got a we got a big old flat screen on the wall. Got it. Um, you also created one of the great podcasts, "Wind of Change," about a song that was about a particular time in Eastern Europe and the notion that it might have actually been written by the CIA. I loved the podcast; it was terrific. Oh, thank you. Entering into that, is that a new muscle that? And did you wonder, you know, do I have this muscle or is it it's reporting, it's storytelling of which you are, are quite adept. It, it's it's in my wheelhouse. That's interesting. I the main thing I knew about that story is that it wasn't going to work on the page. I was pretty sure. And because mainly because there was it's about this, you know, this central idea is that the CIA may or may not have written this song. And I wasn't sure that I could either definitively prove that or definitively disprove it. Um, so that was a whole new medium for me podcasting. And I loved it. I loved every minute of it. Um, I loved working on a team. You know, I felt like I'd kind of run off and join the circus or joined a band. I had I had a crew of people that I was working with every day. And that's so different from the isolating experience of writing. Um, and I the one thing I knew was that um, I knew that the story itself was just a great story. I knew I had a hot hand <laughs> from the from the in part because this was a story I'd been telling people at dinner parties for 10 years. And so, you know. I had the elevator pitch down <laughs> um, and uh, and so I was very confident in that, you know, in terms of actually figuring out how to tell it in a new medium. No, I had I had some real vertigo 
it wasn't it wasn't fear of failure per se, but it was a, a sense of like, gosh, I don't, you know, none of us really know. We're kind of making it up as we go along, right. and that was thrilling. I love that. Um, I love that feeling. I, I'd love to do another podcast at some point. I just have to find the right story. Are there any elements of your years growing up uh, at home with your folks at Milton Academy in the years leading up to going off to Columbia and then Cambridge and London School of Economics, Yale Law School, those early years that have a tangible effect on the work that you do now and how you do that work? I mean, all of it, honestly. I, I don't, um, you know, I... I uh, I had a great education all the way through and loved reading and, and loved my various teachers, um, and loved writing. Um, but I also grew up in a, you know, I grew up in a big diverse urban neighborhood in Boston where, uh, you couldn't, I mean, my dad is a good example of this. He's like, on the one hand, he's a very, on the one hand, there's something, pretentious about reading your kids Charles Dickens, you know, at home around the fire in the 80s. On the other hand, my dad was a tough guy who, you know, was college quarterback at at, uh, at Fordham and, and um, you know, played full contact, no pads, uh, uh, football every weekend uh, with a bunch of firefighters when I was growing up. And, and being in a big urban environment where you had to kind of go out and meet people where they are and find a way to connect with people, I think really helped me as a reporter because some of it's about code switching, but some of it is about just knowing that, you know, there's, there's no environment in which you can, I, ideally you can drop me into any environment and I'll find a way to find some, some common ground with people and some idiom in which we can talk and they can tell me their stories. And, um, so I think those, those different influences, uh, those different influences kind of played into it. You know, it's it's the sort of it's the disparate, the different disparate projects of, of writing on the one hand, which is so solitary and so cerebral, and then reporting when you're out. If you're doing it well, you're kind of out there in the thick of it. You're in the mix. You're talking with people. Um, th- there are some real intellectuals who I think can kind of move through the world with the guise of the like pipe smoking intellectual. I'm not going to mention any names here and still be effective reporters. Uh, but I think they're few and far between. I think by and large, you know, you need to go out and, and kind of meet people where they are. And for me growing up in, in Dorchester, this, this neighborhood that I, you know, that I love and I, I missed and was very formative for me, um, really helped. Patrick Radden Keefe. His latest book is Rogues, True Stories of Grifters, Killers, Rebels and Crooks. It's a collection of his pieces for The New Yorker. His 2021 book, Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty, about one family and the opioid epidemic, comes out in paperback in October. And there's an award-winning podcast, Wind of Change, about the song Wind of Change, inspired by the changes in Eastern Europe in the late 1980s, and the possibility that the song was actually written by the CIA. Before the Cheering Started is a production of June 14th Productions and Gemini 13 Productions. This episode was created and written and produced by me. Guitar playing, that's me as well. No extra charge. The episode was edited 
by Lou Pellegrino. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. Thanks for joining us on the journey.